This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alison Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by my two colleagues, Andrew Dykes and Ryan Duff. And not to pull back the curtain too much, guys, but, you know, I've been off most of this week, hadn't planned on being on the pods today. But then, you know, Muggins here had to deal with Labour and their windfall tax shenanigans uh, last night. And that, that to me, is the real betrayal if indeed there has been any um this week but um but yeah hey, kudos to you uh kudos to you working the graveyard shift on that one for bad news bad news at a bad time humble brag humble brag graveyard shift <laughs> uh yeah uh well we'll start there today uh this is the publication of a briefing document for labor's green prosperity plan and most of the coverage has rightly focused on the well, the U-turn uh, Labour has made over its $28 billion annual investment uh, package of commitment. Uh, this document slashes that target down by more than 80%, down to just about $4.7 billion a year. That is a huge climb down, no matter which way you slice it. Keir Starmer says the move is no longer affordable, blaming the UK uh, government for, for crashing the economy um, in his defence to, I think I saw on the BBC this morning, um, but before we launch a tirade on the windfall tax element of this, and that's, that is indeed where we're going here, um, there are a couple of things to like here we should probably point to. There are things like um, investment and, and infra- port infrastructure, a bit more detail on GB Energy, which we can perhaps um, come and circle back to, a little bit on warm homes again, um, stuff to pick apart there. But I suppose that the, Grampian, the Aberdeen Grampian Chamber of Commerce uh, was very quick uh, out of the gates last night and said that this uh, this is kind of the North Sea being used as a cash cow to fund investment in other parts of the country at a, at a very difficult time uh, economically for this kind of part of the world. And it's a, it is hard to argue against that. So what are Labour proposing? Labour says it will increase the tax rate from 75% to 78%. They say the same as Norway. Again, maybe we can pick up on that when we think about things like tax incentives. They will stop the investment allowance, the tax loopholes, they call it. For those who perhaps don't know, there's currently an 80% investment allowance in the North Sea, which combined with other measures, it means that you can basically get 91 pence return on every one pound spent on new oil and gas developments. Um, Labour will also extend the sunset clause from March 2028 to the end of the next parliament. And together, they say this package of measures will raise in the region of £10.8 billion over the next five years to help fund this green prosperity plan. Looking at it uh, overall, uh, that kind of last page, if you like, the windfall tax page, uh, this looks to be pretty much the exact opposite of what the industry has been calling for. Um, We haven't had OEUK's response yet at time of recording. Come on, lads, what's happening? (laughs) Get a move on. but already, you know, already we're seeing warnings. You know, this will drive jobs, investment, skills away right when they're needed for you know oil and gas and energy transition activities. When the EPL was introduced in 2022, we uh, had stats from UK: 90% of operators had cut spending. We have seen some uh, cut jobs: Apache, Harbour Energy, and you know these firms have pointed out that the windfall conditions are no longer in place, and therefore the levy should end. And Keir Starmer was in Aberdeen just three months ago to have uh, what what appeared to be very positive, frank and honest conversations about the, the challenges the industry faced. It seems he did here, but he chose not to listen based on this. Uh, Russell Borthwick of the Chamber of Commerce, who arranged that visit, said this plan feels like a betrayal. It treats Scotland as an afterthought 
and would tax our energy sector to death at the very time we need to be accelerating transition. It positions the Labour Party against jobs and against energy security. A couple of our comments. Uh, I picked up Martin Finlay, former partner at KPMG here in Aberdeen. He said you can hear the sound of investors running for the hills. A bit of a question of what's the end game here? So you close down the UKCS prematurely, you import more from Norway, if Norway produce enough to do, for us to do that, write off the negative impact on UK GDP, and laud the apparent climate activist win. You know, I'm sure Keir Starmer has got a full grasp of the issues here uh, and what this could mean for the Northeast and indeed, you know, the skills needed to sustain the energy transition. It is hard to see this as anything, but I, 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 I don't think it's harsh to say willfully ignorant in favour of a popularist policy. What is your What are your thoughts, guys? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting cycling back to the uh, the Norway thing. You know, oh, we're gonna we're gonna make our tax rates the same as as our Norwegian cousins. Looking sort of Stavanger and their their energy uh, energy infrastructure, their energy industry, but. Yeah, like like you alluded to, there's investment incentives in Norway, and frankly, the the only incentive that the the EPL offers is that return on investment. And if that's being scrapped, what's the comparison to Norway other than we copied their number? I don't I don't really know. I, th- I think that's I think that's something that you've really got to sort of pull out there. But I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, I think this could be. A vote winner for some people, but also very much a vote loser for others. I, I don't, I, I don't really see where the uh, the sense is after after speaking to uh, speaking to the folks up here in Aberdeen. Yeah, Andrew, any thoughts on that? So I think there's a lot of parallels with the uh, the Rosebank letter that we discussed last week, right? Where I think that there seems to have been a meeting where a group of people had one assumption as to what has been said and, and what support they were going to get. And someone has kind of gone around and done the other thing. And I think, you know, they're rightly aggrieved about it. I can understand how, you know, the long summer of Wilkie or Starmer visit Aberdeen to finally do it in whatever it was, October, November time, uh, and then to come out with this outcome kind of soon into the new year. While we're still sort of discussing whether whether and when the general election will fall, I think, yeah, it's, it's a tough blow to take, I'm sure, for the industry. And I think they're probably rightly angry about it. As to the 78%, I don't know. I mean, it seems like if you're going to compare yourself to anyone, why not Norway? But I'm sure they're uh, they're not in favor of just picking numbers like that out of the air, right? Yeah, I- I'm sure what the industry will say is, as regards the Norway piece, as, as we've discussed on here before, is, okay, a slightly higher tax rate, but crucially, a much more stable regime in terms of predictability and you know long-term investment. Uh, it's it's Yeah, I, it's, I think the betrayal word isn't, I don't think it's too strong. Obviously, Starmer was 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 quite careful not to commit himself to anything other than listening to the issues and and all the rest of it when he was up in Aberdeen. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the cynics among us, uh, I feel, perhaps been proven right about the outcomes here. A couple of little bits to touch on this plan before we round off this section, guys. Um, a bit more on GB Energy. I, I'm not honestly, I'm not sure if it's all been said before. An initial 8.3 billion investment over the first parliament to try to emulate the success of domestic energy champions in other European countries. Discussing here investment in homegrown clean energy. Talking about nuclear, offshore wind, tidal. Nothing on gas or oil, which right now remains absolutely vital to our system. And I'm still not clear if this is a utilities firm, it's a wind and tidal operator slash developer, is it both? Um, but an initial 8.3 billion followed by a public-private partnership seems to be the the plan. You do wonder about the viability here. I mean, especially when paired with the gargantuan task of reforming the grid, which, by the way, gets uh, I think one one fleeting mention in this document. Um, you know, 2022 national grid suggested 
you know, key upgrades are going to cost in the region of £54 billion pounds, uh, to cater to the power being generated through offshore wind. So uh, I think there's still a, a bit of a question mark over that. Warm Homes Plan, uh, $6.6 billion. Um, Labour says that's doubling the government's $6.6 billion, so I guess 13, 13 and a half or so, something like that, to go street by street to insulate up to 5 million of the UK's 16 million homes in need of energy efficiency measures. So to what extent that makes a dent in what I imagine is a growing problem and why the 13 billion is enough to do it, you know, again, intrigued to know. And, and, and the last kind of point I was going to touch on, creation of a national wealth fund with labour investing 7.3 billion. Again, where is that money going to come from? And it's hard to see that taxation of the North Sea industry isn't going to be part of of the plan. So I think I think there's a lot to be concerned about here uh, for the industry. We haven't, as I say, yet had the main wave of industry reaction. Um, people are a little bit slow off the mark, I'm afraid. Um, but we'll be keeping an eye on that uh, and lots more to chew over. Uh, certainly more business consternation on the way. I can't do anything but a clumsy segue here. So next we'll move from North Sea Tax to West of Shetland drilling after the break. The cost of polluting is increasingly high for companies covered by emissions trading schemes. New sectors, new regulations and tougher rules will transform the industry in the UK and Europe in the upcoming decades. Navigate the emissions trading market with the support of our experienced team. Virtus Environmental Finance, emissions trading in safe hands. Okay, Ryan, uh, some problems, some quite shocking footage emerging from Diamond Offshore this week. Uh, what's been happening? Yeah, so um, on Tuesday, we uh, we shared some footage of the moment that um, the Ocean Great White semi-sub rigs uh, lower marine riser package quote, unintentionally separated from the rig, falling uh, to the seabed. It was like you say, it was quite dramatic footage. It's uh, it's quite it, it, it's quite sort of striking to see to see these things. Often when you when you hear about this, it's a HSE update or something. So to actually see it in progress is um, quite interesting, but also quite like you say, shocking. Um, Essentially, this uh, this took place start of the month. This took place on the first of Fe- February uh, during a storm. The the kit detached from uh, from the rig at the uh, slip joint tension ring, uh, at which point it you know fell to the sea bo- uh, sea floor. Um, the the currently the, uh, the the rig is working at BP's Shahalian Field west of Shetland. It's about 125 miles from the islands. And Diamond Drilling is currently uh, conducting a five-year well campaign across uh, a couple of different uh, BP, uh, BP projects, including uh, including Shehalian. Uh, it would be sort of wrapping up that that deal round about now. Uh, the deal was worth about eighty million at the time uh, it was penned. Uh, the work uh, was expected to take three hundred days, uh, plus uh, another option for. Eight, if if needed, uh, which I think at the time it was implied that those would be uh, those would be used as well. There's no indication uh, so far from BP or Diamond Drilling how how this is going to impact the uh, the timeline of that that contract. It doesn't really dive into if if operations had been wrapped up and it was ready to sort of go anyway, or if this was a if this was sort of middle of operations and still needing to um needing to do some extra work 
It is worth noting, though, that uh, BP has uh, made it very clear that um, there was no drilling being t- taking place. Uh, the the Ocean Great White was not in operation when this happened. Um, so that's 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 worth noting. Yeah, the the blowout preventer did its job to prevent any kind of catastrophic leaks like we saw with uh, Macondo, what, 14 years ago, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think I saw some reports uh, explaining that essentially that bit of kit is what failed on. I thought this was maybe a bit of a dramatic comparison, but maybe maybe one to to keep uh, keep in mind was a that's what failed in Deepwater Horizon, and that's what sort of led to that. But everything seems fine. There's been no indication that anyone working in the area was harmed or injured in any way, and there was no sort of Oil and, ga- oil and gas leakage, or at least no, no sort of notable, notable sort of leakage. Anyway, so definitely, um, de- uh, you know, uh, it's it's maybe it more dramatic to, to see the see the incident take place rather than actually the consequences of it. But I, I kind of wanted to put this to you guys because you know, I, as I've said before, I've not been I've not been reporting on this beat for an exceptionally long period of time. I was just wondering if you guys do you guys did you remember? hear that little dig about him being younger than us there, Andrew? Or... <laughs> That's exactly what <laughs> did it you was. did you pick did you pick up on that? I think I, I did clock that. that. Well, I, I don't know how I feel about that, Ryan. I really don't. Well, that's anyway. that. I mean, you know, experience trumps all and all that. Uh, but I <laughs> I just wanted to to dive in to say like you know. Do you, if you guys, do you guys remember something like this taking place? And if so, what was the, what was the fallout? What happened afterwards? Um, I, I would say that I think my knowledge of, of oil and gas health and safety is that dropped objects are one of the major <laughs> safety hazards. <laughs> the size of those dropped objects in this case, I think, dramatically, uh, you know, different kettle of fish. I haven't seen anything kind of quite of that magnitude. I think it's probably worth saying it was very stormy seas, right? And I think that's clearly played a, a, a role mm. in. Uh, whatever has happened, and we'll kind of wait for the full investigation um, to reveal what the causes are. Um, but yeah, it was certainly, you know, the, the footage that we have, I think, is kind of on, on a screen, you can see it detaching, you can see it going into the sea. I think the scale of it is worth bearing in mind, that's kind of, you know, tonnage worth of kit. Uh, and I think it, regardless of kind of how these things come about, it is, you know, a monumental um, issue that needs addressed, I think. I mean, Alistair, you were at an HSE conference not but yesterday. Did this come up at all? Was was anyone kind of referencing it, or, or and does this play into maybe some of the wider HSE issues that we've been talking about? It, it, it seems whenever there's an HSE conference in Aberdeen days earlier, there is going to be some sort of disaster and storm. <laughs> um, it didn't come up. I, I was partly obviously for the news angle. I was I was hoping it would, and you know, a, a bit of an omission from them. But um, you know, nonetheless, uh, you know, certain companies are up for talking about specific incidents. Some aren't. Um, in terms of parallels to this, Ryan, I mean, the thing that kind of came to mind um, was a, a, kind of the crane boom collapse we saw on what was then the Rowan Gorilla Seven. I think in 2016, it was quite a long time ago. But uh, Valaris was fined um, by the via the HSE, taking them to court uh, a, a month or so ago. I think two months ago. Um, Obviously, you know, this being kind of subsea, and obviously there wouldn't be any divers in the water um, in that kind of stormy conditions. Um, I did notice a, a link on somebody on LinkedIn mentioning, oh, I've got fear of as a diver, you know, things collapsing on me from above, and, and you can see what they mean for, from that. But yeah, it, it seems from the HSE, from the people perspective, from what we gather from the incident now, that there's there's not too much to 
to um, worry about in the immediate term. Clearly, there's something has gone wrong. Clearly, some processes need to be checked and, and, and measures taken to ensure this doesn't happen again. But, I mean, look, we, we hear constantly about the North Sea being kind of the gold standard for safety, and this is West of Shetland, but the UKCS. And, you know, companies being used to operating in these kinds of conditions. You know, we, we have seen of late two rigs, you know, lose their bearing and go adrift a long way in storms in recent months. We have seen, you know, a helicopter um, have its, its blades blown off uh, and, uh, during storm auto last year um, whilst people were still on the helideck. We've seen this happen in, 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 in a stormy weather as well. Um, I think perhaps the industry needs to do more to get to grips with whether they should be operating in these kind of conditions if they can't do it safely without these kind of high-profile incidents. Perhaps they need to take a second look at themselves. I think that's a very salient point. And I think the, f- the frequency of these storms increasing, I think those tolerances and how you measure them and how quickly you can respond, I think, certainly. That seemed to be the, the case with the, uh, the rig that detached uh, late last year in, in, from the anchors. Um, I think, you know, they did have, I think, warnings, and that's what the HSE, I think, uh, took issue with, was, was the length of time that they were warned and that kind of failures and procedures mean they didn't quite act in time. Um, and I think, clearly, yeah, the, the operating tolerances and the weather windows are going to something that I think should be should be looked at, given just, you know, in this, whatever, three or four-month period. Interestingly, um, a complete tangent, but SSE uh, also released their results this week and were mentioning about the impact of storms just on their kind of bottom line as a renewables generator and what that does I think from the network's point of view but also kind of when you have to stop wind turbines when you have to stop I guess hydro assets all these other things across the portfolio because of storms so I think you know meteorological <laughs> awareness uh, definitely going to be a hot topic for 2024 and onwards I think more storms impacting the oil and gas industry is there any hint of irony there I, I just wonder <laughs> I think uh, it is worth noting as well that sort of all parties involved are looking into this they are uh, that there are sort of independent investigations taking place from BP and diamond drilling uh, HSE also told us that they were aware of the incident. They didn't explicitly say they were investigating, though. It was kind of more we're keeping an eye, but I'd imagine that means that more more will follow from from the the health and safety watchdog very uh, very soon. So I think it's worth uh, worth one to to keep an eye out for. You know, absolutely. Uh, so yes, the rig was working for BP, and another clumsy segue. We'll hone in on BP next, and it's big decisions to be made on big projects. Energy Voice leads the global energy conversation, which is why we're excited to introduce our newest offering, eForward. eForward is the essential and exclusive community of senior North Sea leaders driving the movement to secure clean energy. The energy transition is not just a climate issue, but an economic imperative. We have a leading position in this race, and eForward can help you take advantage in a discrete environment where thought leaders and recognized experts can collaborate on moving energy forward. This is the specialist membership designed exclusively for North Sea innovators, offering a focused program of events, valuable data-driven insight, and an exclusive digital hub. This is where you can set the agenda and shape the energy transition. If you're one of energy's forward thinkers, it's time you joined us. Visit eforward.energy, that's E-F-W-D dot energy, to learn more and to join this exclusive community. Okay, Andrew, uh, BP's full year, full year results this week and uh, lots to discuss in terms of their priorities uh, and their projects ahead. Yeah, a good week for BP, I think, and a good week for new CEO Murray Ockenkloss, who I feel like comes up weekly. I feel like I have to become the Murray Ockenkloss correspondent now, but 
Uh, congratulations again. You're jealous you didn't get the job. I mean, yeah, congr- congrats, Murray. <laughs> <laughs> my, my rival. Congratulations again, and uh, congratulations on, the, on a good result this week. Um, they posted underlying replacement cost profits to so their proxy for, for net takings of uh, $13.8 billion for full year 2023 and $3 billion for the fourth quarter. So earnings kind of returning roughly to levels uh, seen prior to the outbreak of war in Ukraine. On a pre-tax basis, it's about $1.1 billion for the fourth quarter and $23.7 billion for full year. Um, I, th- I had seen some comments from mainly detractors suggesting this was a bit of a slump, but it's only a slump compared to the record 277 uh, achieved last year. It's still the second highest profit seen in the past I think, 11, 10, 11 years. So I think uh, certainly a vindication of strategy and certainly something that Murray Auchincloss was making clear during those results uh, saying that the company remained confident in its strategy. And he kind of had this mantra that he repeated throughout the analyst call that the destination remains unchanged. So I can very much uh, settling into the continuity of strategy of, of BP performing at or above the level uh, expected. I think it beat analysts' uh, expectations as well. So yeah, I think a lot for him to be glowing about this week. Um, we did wonder whether his kind of confirmation would signal any kind of major strategic shifts, and he seemed to kind of use this to suggest no, in fact, that he was very much steadying the ship and it would be steady as she goes. One uh, notable point was the uh, yet again upping their buybacks, so it's going to be $1.75 billion for the next quarter compared with $1.5 last quarter, $3.5 billion for the first half of the year. That is part of larger plans to return at least uh, $14 billion dollars uh, by the end of 2025, uh, a commitment to return at least 80% of surplus surplus cash flow to shareholders. Um, so certainly that uh, that trend that we've seen of all of this spare cash, very <laughs> very little of it being reinvested or kind of being committed towards a lot of this transition stuff. Certainly, it's really about propping up investor returns and emphasizing the profitability of these companies. And that's across the board. I think we saw this week that about 114 billion across the super majors. So Exxon. Chevron, Shell, the biggest uh, investor payouts, I think, in potentially in their history, but certainly in recent years. Um, but specifically on BP, um, a few other kind of nuggets to pull out. They confirmed the spudding of the first two wells at Murlach. Um, that is uh, the field that was approved uh, in October. First oil expected in 2025. Uh, that's a redevelopment of the Marnock Skua field. Um, which was previously operated by Shell and I think ceased in kind of the early 2000s. So the redevelopment's 26 million barrels, 602 million cubic meters of gas. Uh, so it looks to be on track there. So an interesting project update. More widely, though, um, on the analyst call, uh, Mario Alkenklaas talked about these 12 to 16 major projects that were now on the books and uh, kind of said that he's going to be looking at those to uh, to up the reserves replacement ratio, which at the, the past few years seems to be a little bit uncompetitive, he suggested. So he pointed to you know, a host of projects. We've got Cabo Frio in Brazil. There's Bay du Nord in Canada, which I think Equinor issued an update on this week or last. Um, a trio in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's Casquita, Tiber, and Gila. Uh, there's also the Clare expansion west of Shetland and another expansion in Abu Dhabi. There's GTA Phase 1 and 2. There's an extension to Argos. There's more work at Tangu. They've got loads, loads on. <laughs> it's all happening, uh, guys. It's all happening. <laughs> it's all happening. But he sort of seemed to suggest that um, you know, they have a commitment, I think, to grow oil production 2 to 3%. So this is mostly liquids he was mentioning, to, uh, 2 to 3% through 2027. Um, they have that wider target, though, to kind of uh, reach 2 million barrels of oil equivalent production by 2030. So that's down from 2.6. So essentially, it's it's all about portfolio management. And I think amid all of this, 
uh, strategic stuff. He, he said he'd be really focused on, um, he's, he would not be focused on volume, he would be focused on returns. So they have this big uh, portfolio of projects. What is clear though, is that they will very much rationalize how these go ahead. We, I think, would have been expecting clear uh, result, possibly at the end of last year, but I think now it's looking more clearly like uh, this year there, there might be an FID on the Claire expansion. So whether that kind of falls into that rationalization, I'm not sure. Um, the weighting of, of oil and gas is also kind of still up for debate. Again, he says he's mainly focused on uh, on returns rather than volumes. So it could be a shift away from gas. We've seen a bit of a rush to that. I know Ed was had been talking about that in recent weeks. Um, so that'll be interesting to, to keep an eye on. On a kind of more strategic note across the organization, he was asked whether he kind of would do a lot of this restructuring, a lot of this, again, strategy repositioning, the likes of which we're seeing under, uh, well, so on at Shell. And he pointed to the huge change that BP undertook through 2020. Uh, so I think the company axed around 10,000 uh, positions, about 2,000 of which were thought to be in the UK, basically saying that he doesn't want to do that again. Um, he said it was needed at the time, um, but it was really demanding on people and on the company. Um, and so he doesn't want to do any kind of mass changes like that. Again, steady as she goes. He pointed to a couple of places where he said there are inefficiencies, but he said he'd rather deal with them kind of gradually and, and specifically rather than this you know, top-down reorganization. Um, and the other thing was on, on kind of mergers and acquisitions. So he pointed to the fact they've done about five major acquisitions in the past 18 months, I think. There's a takeover of EDF's energy business in North America. There was Arkea uh, travel centers, I think sort of uh, uh, petrol retail business in the States. And uh, they also brought their former joint venture life source fully in-house. So he's basically saying they've kind of reached the max capacity of, of M&A that they can do at the moment. He said, we've probably got one or two more in us. So I guess stay tuned. It'd be interesting to see where any further acquisitions would fall into that value chain. Um, but I think mid-decade, mid he's sort of saying they'll, they'll do a bit of stock taking and probably pause M&A. So, I mean, I think... From an investor's point of view, a lot more cash to come by the looks of it. Um, certainly, uh, Murray uh, steadying the ship as promised. Whether or not that is enough uh, to kind of sate investors, I think a lot of uh, analysts had suggested they maybe did expect a bit of a strategy change and not seeing that may affect their kind of prospects going through the year. Um, I mean, Alistair, I'm conscious you were not on the button with this this week, but I wondered what your reflections were. Yeah, I was uh, too busy. Um, taking my daughter to nurseries and things like that, but uh, I did I did check into uh, BP's results on that. I mean, look, uh, you you said yourself that um, you know second highest results in a decade. Um, we're kind of arguing, or the industry's kind of arguing that the windfall tax conditions are gone. <laughs> it, it just occurs to me, looking at it from the UK prism, um, this is uh, pretty bad timing um, for, for, as regards coming up for a general election and the whopping. Um, um, returns to shareholders um, across the board, and yes, I get they need to increase their their share price as compared to their their rivals. They need to think of their investors to be a strong investment case. Um, nonetheless, you know, if you're going to argue, well, these was, these profits don't come from the North Sea. Well, are you going to publish your North Sea specific results? Uh, no, we're not going to. Well, you know, make a decision, guys. You know, you can't really argue that and then not do that. You know, so you know, I think in terms of it. You know, it's definitely a boon for for BP. It's a boon for for Mario Auchincloss, as you say, uh, Andrew. But um, yeah, it's been a in terms of the, the the where we are today and where we started this podcast on in terms of the windfall tax and and the very real prospect of labour coming in and they will use these results to 
you know, against the industry to 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 plead their case and to argue their case, and and that's all the while, you know, companies like BP probably won't be too badly affected by the windfall tax. I'm sure they won't be, but the smaller uh, the smaller operators are the operators that don't have, you know, um, projects in the pipeline to to gain those investment allowances. Those are the firms that we have seen really stifled by by this um, by this tax. And um, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know how this. I, I can't see this being a positive in terms of the industry's arguments against further levies put it that way yeah i think it's going to be really difficult to square that circle certainly with the fact just the facts of of the extent of which um these companies are you know as is the right but exercising this uh returns to shareholders at the level that they are doing in the wake of an, an energy crisis that has affected i think pretty much everyone globally um whether or not that you know the, the exact proportion <laughs> of the north sea's role in that i think is uh, is important, but I think it's it's you're swimming against the tide really to try and argue that kind of these these are companies that need extra tax breaks or extra investment incentives when you're at that level of returns, right? And appreciate that's a global perspective versus a local perspective, but it, those are, are what's really important when you're trying to convince people of the need to do things like this, right? Both from an industry and from the public's perspective. So um, you know, I know BP has plenty to invest in the UK. You know, there is a lot of carbon capture work. I think there's, there's hydrogen work. There's wind projects, mm-hmm. of course. Um, whether or not they're able to kind of articulate that in the face of uh, some of the the rest of the stuff that's going on across the industry is, is going to be interesting. Yeah, we were speaking about uh, Labour's plan to rise to the EPL rates, you know, at the start of the show and saying, you know, it could be a vote winner, it could be a vote loser, depends on what side of the, the fence you're on. The average voter does just see those headlines, don't they? They just see, you know, shells beating expectations. The, uh, was it last week? BP's beating expectations this week. Yeah. And they're, but they're still saying, but the windfall's gone. And, you know, I think that's, it's a tough sell to the average voter to say, well, yeah, but those, those profits aren't, aren't here. They're overseas, but they're UK listed companies. They're headquartered in the UK. You know, it's, it, I, that's what the average person's going to see. Mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely. You totally get why some people would say, well, these guys still are making way too much money. So let's, Let's tax them and bring the money into the into UK infrastructure. I told, I, yeah, I, I get get that, and maybe maybe this is this is a bit strategic, looking at it sort of as a more sort of holistic thing from um from Labour going. Well, now is a great time because you know Shell and BP are in the headlines saying that they beat analyst expectations, so you know they can come back out and say, yeah, but that's that's international, or you know the the arguments they'll make, but. At the end of the day, that's not the nuance that will tr- trickle through, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that the whole sector, and this is not just oil and gas, but certainly renewables, networks, uh, grid, battery storage, all this stuff is, is kind of don't use energy as a football. <laughs> and I think, I think this week is, you know, someone's taken a bunch of penalty kicks, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be really uh, difficult to, to navigate that, that line, I think, between making all of this work and, and like you say, Ryan, this holistic picture that you know you, you need investment across the board and it can't just be kind of this skewed approach and one one-sided yeah yeah i think i think we're only at half time in the windfall tax <laughs> match uh, but we're at full time for this latest episode of energy voice out loud so that is it and thank you to andrew and ryan for joining me i've been alsa thomas and thanks for listening out loud is the podcast from energy voice leading the global energy conversation.
Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.